Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. This week, Nick Hornby. Nick's book, High Fidelity, is one of my favorites ever. And a lot of what it's about is that idea of balancing yourself between passion and obsession, especially when it comes to music, which is the case of the main character of High Fidelity, Rob. This is actually a movie that I really loved, too, weirdly enough. Yeah, you usually don't like it when they turn books into movies. High Fidelity, the film, also established my love for John Cusack, which is real. Hey, John. (laughs) And it taught me how to make a good mix CD. Mixtape. Even if it's on CD, I still want you to call it a mixtape. Okay, mixtape. That's fair. You got to kick it off with a killer to grab attention. Then you got to take it up a notch. But you don't want to blow your wad. So then you got to cool it off a notch. There are a lot of rules. I believe when I fall in love Naturally, the High Fidelity soundtrack itself is an amazing mixtape. We have the Beta Band, the Velvet Underground, Stevie Wonder. Franklin, Stevie Wonder. This is a beautiful piece of art, you guys. This is one of those soundtracks that makes you feel like a cool person just listening to it. This is a definition of my So yeah, we were pretty excited to talk to Nick Hornby about High Fidelity, but also about some of his more recent projects, like doing an album with Ben Folds. As a lifelong music super fan, getting to write songs with one of his favorite pop music makers, that had to be pretty great. He'll also give us homework, and we will add to your syllabus. That's all right here on Nerdette. Trisha, here's what I really love about Nick Hornby's stories. Often the protagonist starts off being almost too self-conscious, right? They're sort of selfish. They're like potentially awful people. (laughs) But through the relationships that they develop over the course of the book or the movie or the song or whatever it is, they become more self-aware and better human beings. And even if it's not the sort of ending where everyone lives happily ever after and the two people who you wanted to be together are together... It still is good because you know everything's going to be okay. Nick's most recent book fits into that category, too. It's called The Funny Girl. It's set in the 1950s and 60s, and it's kind of about a British Carol Burnett character. I loved it. And if you haven't read that yet, you should check it out. Nick also wrote a screenplay that's been nominated for an Oscar. It's called Brooklyn, and it's about a young Irish woman who immigrates to the United States to make a new life for herself. It's about being homesick and lonely, but also how empowering it is to overcome that. Brooklyn is based on a novel that Nick Hornby didn't write. It's actually a novel by Colm Tobin. So we asked Nick, what's the difference between having to adapt your own work for the screen and getting to play with someone else's book? He talked to us from his home in London. 
One of the great things about being given the chance to adapt is just having all that fresh material. I think the thing with books is however different you try and make them from each other, there always comes a point about halfway through when you think, oh, it's me again. I really didn't <laughs> think it was going to be me this time. It's a bit like the... Um, you know, the Truman Show when he clunks up against the sky. I, I feel like I'm constantly clunking up against the inside of my own skull. And the adaptations that I've done, it, it feels like, you know, some kind of hatch has opened and, I, and I've been able to escape my head and get into somebody else's. That was true with Brooklyn. I couldn't have written that book. Certainly true with Wild. I couldn't have written that book either for many, many reasons. So it, it feels like fresh, unploughed territory which I think you need every now and again. Absolutely. I really loved Brooklyn. I think partly I thought that it isn't too dissimilar from a lot of your work just in the sense that it's about sort of those the quiet turmoil that takes place inside of all of us as we're trying to become like real live adult human people. <laughs> well it's certainly somebody who's at the crossroads and I guess that's very fertile territory for all novelists and filmmakers but it certainly has been for me I think the, the, the sort of younger person having to make choices that they know will define the rest of their lives. Why do stories like that appeal to you so much you think? Um, oh there are lots of reasons I mean it always strikes me as being incredibly important that what you're prepared to donate a couple of years of your life to or devote a couple of years of your life to is the defining moment in a character's life. That feels... I mean, I could never write a sequel, for example, because it, it feels a bit to me like cheating. <laughs> um, because what you're effectively saying is, you know, I said that was the defining moment. Well, it's actually this is the defining moment. In terms of movies, one of the things it gives you is the opportunity to work with young actors. And, and one thing I've learnt with these movie projects is that if you write a part for a young woman, a big part for a young woman, you have the choice of all the acting talent in the world because there are so few parts for, for women. And that's quite a motivation, I think. Speaking of parts for young women, I was just rereading some bits of Funny Girl recently to prepare for our conversation today. And it struck me again how even though this book is set in the past, it often feels unsettlingly familiar. Some of the things that Barbara or Sophie go through in trying to make it in entertainment and just this year seeing Carol Burnett win a lot of Lifetime Achievement Awards and, and just recently her acceptance speech, uh, I think at the SAG Awards, where she recounted an experience that sounds almost identical to one that plays out in Funny Girl. And I wonder, did you really need to set that book back in time? <laughs> <laughs> well... The only reason I did set it back in time is because when I started, I knew I wanted to end with the characters old now. I know that's a spoiler alert, but there we go. <laughs> um, and so then it was a question of mathematics. You think if you're going to end with them being in their 70s, then you want to write about them, you know, at the beginning of their careers in, in, in their 20s. And that, that's 50 years ago. But the more I thought about that, the more I thought that it was an era I wanted to write about partly because it's gone in the sense that we are no longer united by 
television programs in that way. I mean, you mm. had all your, you know, I Love Lucy's and MASH and all those programs where the, the country stopped because everyone watched the same thing at the same time. And that doesn't happen anymore for all sorts of reasons. And I, I wanted to write about a time when popular culture could unify a nation. Even now, when you see something like Trevor Noah replacing Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, and there's all these think pieces being written about how he's just not connecting with as large an audience, but Jon Stewart was never going to connect with as large an audience as Johnny Carson did either. It's a, a winnowing, I think, as you're saying, of the pop culture's reach. Each person has maybe a very dedicated audience, but a very small corner of the universe. Of course, the reach is huge. Everyone knows who Trevor Noah is. I mean, everyone here knows who Trevor Noah is, but we don't watch that program because we consume a lot of media that changes by the hour and, and there's an awful lot of attention given to anything like that. In terms of actually sitting down to watch the show, though, no, there are hundreds of television channels and endless ways of taping them. So, yes, we are not all together in that sense and and those audiences will go on getting smaller and smaller even things like mad men which has been hugely culturally influential if you believe newspapers and magazines <laughs> still has a very small audience so nick a lot of your work involves nostalgia and you know i think often when characters are at the crossroads the stakes seem really high when you look back in retrospect, maybe things were not necessarily as ridiculous and intense as they thought they were. Do you think that too much introspection is the source of all of our problems? Do you think if we just like stopped overthinking things, we'd all be okay? <laughs> well, I think it's true that past generations didn't have as much time for introspection. Hmm. You know, we worked longer hours, we had way, many more duties, um, we had many more household chores, there wasn't en enough leisure time, and um, and now uh, we all have a great deal, even in, during our working days. I think um, you know we, we're left to our own devices an awful lot, and we we can work flexible hours. No one quite knows what a lot of us are up to. <laughs> um, so there is a sense in which, yes, it's very different now, and I, I, I think there's a culture of introspection as well, isn't there? The think piece we're plagued by. <laughs> Well, think pieces, but also um, you go into a bookstore and see a million books about mindfulness or tidying your brain or, you know, all of these things that we're, we're encouraged to be internal, which I, I think is a bit frightening because it doesn't seem to be an awful lot going into the brain. And yet we're, we're encouraged to <laughs> examine ourselves all the time. My favorite are always the apps that are meant to make you rely less on technology. It's just a conundrum, the whole concept. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we're all we're all doomed, let's face it. <laughs> so do you consider yourself to be a nostalgic person? I don't think I do, really. I think that there are things that have gone that I miss, but it's just different, that's all. And there, there are lots and lots of things that are way better. And, you know, I refuse to feel nostalgic for a time that was pretty ugly, Certainly, you know, in England, 60s and 70s, for example, was a, a, a grey, dark time, um, no matter what you read about in terms of pop culture. The swinging 60s applied to very few people. And I grew up in a time during the 1970s where there was, 
you know, extraordinary industrial unrest, for example, so that there was a period where we were working three days a week and and we had power cuts by rote. So, you know, I can remember going to look in the electricity showroom window to see who would have power at the weekend so that we could go and watch TV. And it's incredible to me that I lived through those times, but it's very hard to be nostalgic for them. I don't want to go back to three television channels either, even though I wrote a book about how important it was. Yeah, you like channel number 274 as much as I do. I think it's true. <laughs> we, we like the choice, but we feel overwhelmed by it sometimes. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I love things like Spotify. I, I just mm. can't believe it, really. But I'm, I'm very glad that I was educated in music at a time where I had to work hard for it. Yeah, that is an interesting concept just because, I don't know, I still feel like I need to work hard for it now, but in a different way, right? I mean, there's just so much out there that it often can feel really overwhelming to figure out where I should be looking for guidance in terms of what I should be listening to, you know? Yeah, that's that's what you need is, is someone to lead you through it. But it's an interesting time when all of us own everything. And because that's what we do now. All of us own more or less every piece of music ever recorded. Still to come, we'll talk with Nick about how nerdy obsessions change with age and getting to work with Ben Folds. And I tried to connect with Nick over his love of sports, which doesn't go very well. <laughs> this is Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita, and we are talking today with author and screenwriter and songwriter Nick Hornby. Music has been such an important character in Nick Hornby's writing that it makes sense that eventually he had to write a song or two of his own. Or an entire album, as it turns out. I can do this, really, I'm good enough. I'm as good as them, but don't take it from me. Ask my friends, ask my sister, they all think. My stuff is great. Back in 2010, Nick connected with Ben Folds of Ben Folds 5, and they started working on an album together. It's called Lonely Avenue. Nick wrote the lyrics, and then Ben wrote the music. This is an eclectic album. We've got ballads, we've got some weirder stuff, and then there's this poppy song called A Working Day. Some guy on the net thinks I suck, and he should know he's got his own There's also a song on Lonely Avenue called the Levi Johnston Blues, which as an Alaskan, I just don't even want to talk about. (laughs) In any case, when we talked to Nick, we asked him about Lonely Avenue and how he ended up working with one of his favorite pop music makers. Nick said he'd never even considered writing songs before. Which I find kind of hard to believe. It was a completely new experience. 
what happened was that I wrote about Ben in my book of essays called Songbook. I wrote an appreciation of one of his songs and he got in touch and he invited me to a show and I went to a show in London and, and we had a drink and he said, oh, we should do something at some stage. And I said, yeah, sure. And then a few months after that, he emailed me and he said, do you want to write a song for William Shatner? And, um, <laughs> and you said, uh, I am so offended that you would I, even ask. I said, of course I want to write a song for William Shatner. How great would that be? <laughs> um, and that was the first attempt ever at songwriting in my life. I got your address from the phone book in the library. Wandered in, looked you up, and you were there. And I wrote two songs for this mad William Shatner album that Ben produced. And one of them got used, a song called That's Me Trying, about a very, very bad father. You know, and it was written for, for Bill's voice and age, I guess. Weird that you've been living maybe two miles away for the best part of 20 years. You must be what, in your early 40s now? If I remember, you were born in June. Or was it May? Eisenhower was the president, although it may have been JFK. Years of silence, and it turned out really well. It, it, I mean, the, the song's a lovely thing. And Ben said, oh, OK, let's do a whole album. And uh, I said, OK, let's do a whole album. And Did you pinch yourself at that point a little? I mean... That's a pretty fun moment to have Ben Fold say, hey, let's do an album. Yeah, although I guess I've worked in the arts sufficiently long enough to know that that doesn't necessarily mean there'll be an album. <laughs> um, it, it might mean that I scribble something down that never gets used. So I think the excitement comes at a later stage. And um, <laughs> for me, the excitement came when I was sending Ben these lyrics and he was just sending back MP3s. And it was as simple as that, really. There were a couple of them where I sent him a lyric in, in the evening and, and he'd send me more or less a finished song the following day. Wow. Well, he, he's incredible. He has so much talent, so much musical ability. And I think for him, the process was a little bit like the one I was talking about with adaptation. That, oh, I bet. You know, Ben's been writing songs for a long time and he doesn't write autobiographically very often. So he has to come up with a dozen or 15 short stories every two or three years. And I think it was nice for him to feel that somebody else was doing that. And um, from my point of view, I had lots of little ideas that I didn't know what to do with that I then saw actually could be song lyrics. So it was a happy meeting of minds for those few months where I, I used up this material. And then I started thinking in songs as well. Man in a wheelchair, lobby of the forest with Riders, hustlers, hard-up millionaires Mobsters, cops, horse pimps and Marxists All human life is there I don't know if it would happen again if Ben said, let's make another album, whether my brain would switch and, and suddenly I was thinking in song lyrics. But I remember at that time, anything that I thought of turned out to be a song lyric rather than a script or a, a, a chapter from a book.
but it was a very gratifying process and and I can tell you now that the important part of the song is the music. <laughs> um, you know, you can have a bad lyric and a great song. You can't have bad music and a great song. Wow. So, yeah, did it give you a different appreciation for something that you've always really loved yourself anyway? You know, I mean, yes. to be on the other side of actually creating the thing that you have been so passionate about your whole life. Yes, completely. I mean, for a start, I got to hear how a, a song was built. So, you know, quite often Ben would send me something that was him and a piano, but by the time the song came out, it had maybe an orchestra and, and drums and bass and so on on it. So I, I could hear those layers being added to the song and the difference it made. And also I could understand more about interpretation, I guess, as well, that we, we didn't talk a whole lot about what the songs meant. It was more what Ben thought they meant. And so, you know, the rhythm of a song or the anger in a song or the poignancy in a song, it came in places where I didn't necessarily expect it. What a fascinating experience to have that sort of collaboration. I I hope you do get to do something like that again, because I think it must refill the well for the other kinds of writing you're doing to use a sort of a different muscle group. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm kind of all about the collaboration now when I can be. And that, again, is something that I love about movies, is that I get the chance to work with other people. I mean, you know, there's a sense in which you become a writer because you want to be your own boss. You don't want to be told what to do by somebody else. But I think the humility involved in screenwriting is good for any writer. You listen to very clever people saying the reason this particular line or scene or 100 pages won't work as a movie <laughs> is because of this and that and the other. And, and either you listen to what they say or, or, or get out, really, because there are hundreds of people involved in a movie. It's not just the writer. And um, something like Brooklyn is so much a product of all of our work that I feel almost embarrassed to take any credit for it because what John Crowley, the director, did and what Saoirse did and what the casting director did and what that cast did, I mean, it, it, it takes it on enormous steps to the extent that, uh, yeah, you, you can feel a little embarrassed about being praised at all. Nick, so many of your characters who I love are obsessive to the point where it's almost trips up their life in some way about something, whether it's music or sports. And so we see it as in part a flaw to be that passionate about something. But I wonder, how do you find a happy medium between passion and obsession? Or is it no fun to have a happy medium? Is it better to live in extremes? <laughs> well, I've found in my own life that the happy medium is achieved by age, in fact, because you know, I, I have uh, three kids and a, and a complicated domestic life. And, and however much I want to be obsessive about things, life simply doesn't allow it. And I don't see any harm, really, in, in being obsessed to the point of distraction if there's nothing else going on. I mean, clearly, that's the job that that obsession is doing for you. And I know, for example, with football in, in my life when I was a younger man, it was filling up holes, and it did a good job, actually. Wow, that's a really good way of looking at that. I hadn't thought of it. That it fills as much space as you let it, and that's true. I was just talking to a, a co-worker here who the Super Bowl was recently on, and they've <laughs> the been a football... The Super Bowl was a thing. The Super Bowl yes. was a thing that happened, and they're a lifelong football fan, but they also have a new baby at home, and so they were joking that their version of 
Super Bowl Sunday was dramatically different than it had ever been before in their life because suddenly it did not seem nearly as important as their baby. And even if it did, there isn't an awful lot you can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> unless you want to end up with the social services and, and things. But yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, it's weird. My, my two younger sons are obsessive football fans mm. and, um, and we all watch the same team. But now I'm in a situation where I'm having to calm them down all the time, <laughs> having written about how out of control it all was. And... And I'm trying to find something to say other than, you know, don't get worked up about a football team and it's only a game and, you know, none of that works really. They know that I don't mean it, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm having to be the responsible dampener, as it were. That's so funny. If someone had told you 20 years ago that that's the situation you'd be in, would you have just laughed at them? Yeah, pretty much. And also that thing of having to manage your own disappointment. Mm. Um, You know, when Arsenal loses my own feelings no longer count for very much i have to find something that gets them out of a hole and coming at this time of year the english football season runs from august to may so february march april is the time when it all starts to fall apart and (laughs) uh and and that'll start in the next couple of weeks wow (laughs) my dad likes to say that the only socially acceptable feelings for men to have are sports feelings yeah do you think that's still true no i mean i think and he says it jokingly but it is really funny to see how many men who are often very reticent in expressing themselves in many other areas of their lives can really get into whatever the game is, you know? Well, it's true that um, we joke about it, but when my dad was alive, the only times we ever saw him cry was watching sports on TV. And he'd he'd cry about things that we never even knew he cared about. He just... The fact of somebody winning something or losing something, it didn't matter what kind of investment he had in it. It made him very emotional, and uh, I suppose that was the job it was doing. It's cathartic to care about someone else's failure and success and to see someone put all their time and energy over the course of maybe 90 minutes into getting that kind of result when you might write a novel for five years, I might work out a project at my job for a decade before there's any sort of sense of closure. Yes. But that final score is the final score every time. And it's unambiguous as well. Mm. I mean, one of the really complicated things about working in the arts is that you just never know whether you've done a good job or not. And you will you'll spend the rest of your life not knowing. In the end, you think... I got away with it. That's all you can say. Some people seem to like it and I got paid for it and that's that's the best you can do. But it's up for debate all the time. You know, whether you get an Oscar nomination, whether your film bombs, doesn't matter. It's all up for debate. And sport just isn't because the team that wins beats the other team and that's that. I like that. You know, that's how I consider knitting in my life, actually. <laughs> I'm. I mean it. Greta it's doesn't know a lot about sports, so she's trying really hard to stick with us, no. Nick. No, and now we're going to keep knitting. I know about sports. I just am not super interested. But knitting, I think, takes on that role for me because it's still so, it's like somewhat creative expression. But I'm also following a very specific set of rules. And when the hat is done, you know the hat is done. There's no question about if you should have done something differently, if this piece should be longer, if I should have embellished this more. It's just like, no, here's a hat. It fits on my head. It keeps my ears warm. It's a hat. But 
If I may respectfully disagree, I, I have seen some hats that are, as we should say, open to interpretation as to whether they're a good hat or not. Fair enough, sir. Fair enough. <laughs> so, Nick, I have to tell you, High Fidelity is one of my favorite books. I read it in high school at just kind of that perfect time when I myself was feeling so angsty and could relate so strongly with Rob. And, you know, just sort of that idea that like that we talked about a little bit already the nostalgia of, you know, thinking that things were better, even when they probably actually weren't. And it felt to me a lot like Catcher in the Rye did, except with better music. And even the movie, too, and that soundtrack, there are still songs from the soundtrack of the High Fidelity movie. That beta band song I listen to all the time. And I was just wondering for you, when you were at that, you know, weird, angsty adolescent time in your own life, what were those books for you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think the first books that really meant a lot to me in a this person understands me kind of a way was probably Kurt Vonnegut. Mm. Um, Slaughterhouse-Five and Breakfast of Champions. That kind of directness that Vonnegut had was so important to me uh, because I didn't know you could write like that and be considered literary. So that was a big thing to discover. And then there was a kind of secret literary path where if you loved rock music and you read New Musical Express or Rolling Stone, then you'd start to discover all these other books that weren't on the school syllabus. So that's how I came to read Chandler and, and Dashiell Hammett. Um, Vonnegut came through that too as well. Joseph Heller, all sorts of things that seemed to come actually from musicians and popular culture rather than from teachers. I love that transition when you realize that you're you're reading for fun. Yes. You know, that this is actually what you want to be doing. It's not something that someone's telling you you have to do. Yes. And one of the things that worries me about the way we read as adults is that too many adults actually do still read because they feel like it's something they have to do. And I think it's disastrous for our reading lives. There's such a sense of duty about reading, about reading, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winner or a Booker Prize winner or, or what people are reading in their book group. And, um, and while that goes on, I think TV will always beat <laughs> books in, in terms of what we want to do for fun. Let's reject the notion of guilty pleasure reading and just say, if it's pleasurable and it's reading, there need, exactly. be, there need not be any guilt. Exactly. If you want to pick that book up and read it, then there's no guilt about it. This is a definition of my life. Lying in bed in the sunlight. Choking on the rhythm inside the Still to come on Nerdette, homework from Nick Hornby. Listening to Nerdette, I'm Trisha Bobita along with Greta Johnson, and we're talking with author Nick Hornby. Nick, before we let you go, there's one other thing we'd like to ask you to do. We ask all our guests before they leave us to offer up some homework for our listeners because nerds like homework. And so this can be anything you'd like people to read, watch, do, consider. We're going to make sure that folks know that they ought to go see Brooklyn and that they should read Funny Girl. But what else in the world have you? just fallen in love with lately that you would like other people to discover? 
Oh, that's such a such a good question. All right, well, it, this really sounds like homework, but I promise you it's not. James Shapiro's two books about Shakespeare, um, one's called 1599 and the other one is called The Year of Lear, which was 1609. They're kind of mind-blowing. 1599, he pieces together everything we know about what Shakespeare did in that year and why the four plays that he wrote in that year were written and um, one of my believer collections is called Shakespeare Wrote for Money and that comes from that book because mm. it's very clear that that's one of the reasons that he did <laughs> write was to keep his theatre company going which and he was in a cutthroat industry and then just recently James Shapiro's written this new book about the year of Lear, which is about what was going on in, in the UK and how it influenced Shakespeare. But he's such an accessible writer, Shapiro, and he makes Shakespeare so human and alive. I think they're wonderful books. Wow. that You know, I think I'm going to order that for my dad right now. I think he'd really like that one. Not for your dad. I mean, I'll, I'll read it too, man. <laughs> I just think... I'm he... telling you to read it. I'm not telling your dad to read it. That, that, that is the worst kind of homework escaping. I'm sorry, escaping. that was very disrespectful of me. I meant it, I meant it well. well. Because Shakespeare's an old guy, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know an old guy who would really like that. Yeah, Nick, Shakespeare. Thanks. Before my time. Yeah. <laughs> we'll all read them. It's excellent oh homework gosh. for for yes. all of us. Yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Nick Hornby, thank you so much for talking with us. It was so nice to talk to you. For an old guy, you're really delightful. Who loves the sun? Who cares that it makes plants grow? Who cares what it does since you broke my Nick Hornby's homework for you, again, is 1599 and The Year of Lear. Your homework from us this week is to go check out the film Brooklyn. It's up for several Academy Awards, including Nick Hornby for Best Screenplay Adaptation. Trisha, can I tell you I already ordered those books for my dad? <laughs> of course you did. I'll read them too, though, I swear. Just ahead, we beseech you to give us some nerd confessions, and we'll give you some examples from our own sordid nerdy pasts. Quid pro quo. If we give you a nerd confession, you have to give us one. All of you. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita. And last week we asked you, dear listeners, to send in your nerd confessions. So far, a few of you have taken up this nerdy challenge, but not enough. We need more of you. Here's the deal. A nerd confession is a tiny little story, a tidbit, if you will, from a moment in your life when you did something extremely nerdy, when your obsessions were maybe a little bit ridiculous or delightful. To get you in the sharing spirit, I guess it's only fair that Greta and I each share a nerd confession, so I will have to go with one that's very recent in my life. I think we both should. We both kind of had a big life event that has nerdy things around it, right? We moved. We, we did. both moved to new apartments, and I packed a lot of things in boxes with bubble wrap or whatever, trying to make them safe and not break dishes, all kinds of things. But there's one thing that's too delicate and too fragile for the movers, and that is my Obi-Wan Kenobi bank. Because the Obi-Wan Kenobi bank was given to me when I was very young. It is a family heirloom of sorts <laughs> for the Bobita family. And the lightsaber would totally break off if I just threw it in a box. So whenever I move, Obi-Wan Kenobi has to come with me as a 
companion in the car. Can't go in the moving truck. And it's funny because as I saw you packing up, I noticed that Obi-Wan Kenobi wasn't making it in the boxes. And I was like, is she giving this thing away? What's the deal? No. But now I know. (laughs) So my moving related nerd confession is it's not quite as intense, I don't think, but maybe it is because it's still pretty intense. I put the books into boxes by alphabet and category. No. So now my boxes are labeled like non-fic S through Z or fiction A through H. That's so efficient because now when you finally get shelves, I know I need you to can buy just shelves. open a box, yeah, put it directly on the great. shelf, open a box, put it yeah, directly on the yeah. shelf. So those are some examples. Those are just things that have happened to us each in the last week or so that we thought, you know, we're pretty good. So we'd love to hear from you guys. It really can be about anything. It could be about moving. It could be about museums or monsters or like anything else that starts with an M or not. It's not categories. They don't have to start with M. (laughs) Have I told you how much I love categories? Why have we never played categories together before? (laughs) I don't know. We really should. Oh, my God. In any case, give us a call and leave us a message. 312-600-5638. The other thing you can do, which is pretty easy and kind of cool, is you can record yourself on your smarty phone. So pretty much all of them have a voice memo app of some kind. You record yourself talking into it, and then you have a little file that you can email to nerdappodcast at gmail.com. I want to hear like a good mixtape nerd confession. That also oh, starts let's with make M, a mixtape of them. Don't you think that would be mm-hmm, fun? Mm-hmm. All right. Come at us, guys. 312-600-5638. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, with very special help from Joe Dassault. Our interns are Maya Cole and Sebrin Mallard. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you already are. But we would appreciate it if you made it Facebook official, this relationship. You can follow us there. Or maybe you should give us five stars on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Follow us on NPR One. Take the plunge. Make sure you never miss an episode. You know who gave us five stars, Trisha? I'm not sure. I think it's Chobbit Elf. It might be like Hobbit Elf, like Hala. Yeah, you know, I was wondering I if there's a kind of wanted to be. Yeah. Well, it could be French. It could be Shobi Elf. But I don't know that that's a word, so. Well, they gave confused. us five stars, so they're... They're very generous elves. <laughs> a single elf. They're a very generous elf. Just because we don't know what to call them doesn't mean they have multiple personalities. I know. They're not... All of those things at once. You know what we're saying they, you see. See, they like Nerdette because after they listen, they said that they get to hunt down books and audiobooks and podcasts to listen to. So we are happy that you are doing your homework, Hobbit Elf. (laughs) That's really nice. I bet that is what it is. I bet you got it. In any case, you can find us on Goodreads. We talk about the books we read there. Instagram. And on Instagram, I do little teeny tiny book reviews. So you can find us there as well, Nerdette Podcast, on all the things. Nerdat is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where you can find delightful podcasts for nerds of all stripes. Find out more at wbez.org slash podcasts. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.